We know anticoagulants are important for stroke prevention in patients with atrial fibrillation, but how can we lessen patients' fears of taking them? In this episode of Critical Conversations on Atrial Fibrillation, a masterclass series, Drs. Sean Picorni and Emily P. Zeitler share ways in which clinicians can engage patients to alleviate their concerns through education and shared decision-making to improve medication adherence and patient satisfaction. Welcome to Episode 4, The Fear Factor, Mitigating Patients' Concerns About Anticoagulation for Atrial Fibrillation. As this episode's title implies, we're going to discuss common patient concerns about anticoagulation therapy and share ways in which we can engage patients to alleviate their concerns through education and shared decision-making to improve treatment adherence and satisfaction. What we know from multiple different trials and registries, including the NCDR Pinnacle Registry, is that only roughly 50 to maybe now as much as 60% of patients who have a guideline indication for anticoagulation actually receive stroke prevention appropriately. And we expected that that was going to change once the DOACs or NOACs became available. But what we've seen is that only about a, there's been about a 2% increase in anticoagulation rates year over year since the introduction of those newer agents. We know that, that really in atrial fibrillation, anticoagulants are recommended to be taken indefinitely, but oftentimes non-adherence is a key issue. And we've seen this in the VA system. The VA system is a very comprehensive anticoagulation clinic with their Coumadin clinics and warfarin clinics. And when those um, changed with the introduction of the DOACs and NOACs, they focused a lot of those efforts on adherence. And what they found that was that really over 25% of patients ended up being non-adherent. And that those rates of non-adherence increased the risk of stroke and mortality. We've seen similar things in other meta-analyses across very large groups of patients, of 500,000 patients, and again, similarly in Medicare patients as well. And, and what we end up seeing is that somewhere between a third and a half of patients that receive anticoagulation aren't necessarily adherent over time. And so what are some of the reasons that we hear from patients that they are not adherent? There's a variety of reasons that patients were non-adherent. When you look at things like mild non-adherence, one of the most common ones is forgetfulness. Um, and really forgetfulness tracks across all of the spectrums of adherence. But I think on the patients that are really poorly adherent, what you also hear and maybe hear even more commonly is a fear of a risk of severe bleeding and, and also a lack of symptoms. And so these patients don't understand if I feel fine now, why do I need to take anticoagulation? And so it's really important when you're educating patients around initiating an anticoagulant to really hit some of these key areas and, and target that, that bleeding is less of a concern than patients often think and that, um, that a lack of symptoms is not necessarily mean that these patients are at lower risk of stroke. And so when, when you're educating patients, one of the questions is, well, what strategies can we think of? What strategies do patients find are helpful? And again, I really think it's, it's focusing on some of those education key points when you're talking about why patients need to be on anticoagulation, why you're starting them on an anticoagulant. You know, all of us can think of times when patients come in and say, I'm on um, this medication for my blood pressure called apixaban, and they don't necessarily know why they're taking some of these medications. And so again, making sure that they understand why 
they are on the medications, what the purpose of the medications are, explaining to them that, that there are ways to reverse these medications that are available. That's a common belief out there that there are not ways to reverse these medications. I do think also it's important to focus on, on cost and, and again, making sure that patients can afford the medications that you're prescribing. And if they're not able to afford the medication, trying to get them patient assistance or even targeting uh, less expensive alternatives such as warfarin. There are, uh, as I mentioned, forgetfulness really goes across all the, the pathways of non-adherence. And, and so it's important to think about ways that we can address forgetfulness. And there are a lot of tools to help with that. So one of the things that I encourage my patients to use regularly are pill boxes. We also have blister packs available. I'll frequently encourage patients to set up reminders on their phones, alarms of when to take their medications. And there are even mobile apps out there that are also available. Yeah, those are all really good points, Sean, and I, I use a lot of those in my practice as well. I think patients are increasingly comfortable, even my older patients and less tech-savvy patients are increasingly comfortable using their phone or their watch to set an alarm. Um, I also think that pill boxes, I agree with you, are really underrated, even for patients who are just on one or two medications. The pill boxes can be a great reminder, so I encourage um, all people, young, old, uh, sick, not sick, to use pill boxes. Those are, those are good recommendations. And there are, there are others, and I think... We touched briefly on these in, in prior episodes, and um, so I might sound a bit like a broken record, but I just think it's incredibly important to to make sure we understand, you know, why the patient isn't taking the medicine that we thought they needed to take, and they might have a very good reason for that. Um, for example, I live in an area where a lot of people like to ski, and so they tell me that during the ski season they just don't want to take anticoagulation, and I got to meet them where they are, and so from you know December to February they just don't take their anticoagulation, and I think. Understanding that there's flexibility um, in how we, you know, it, making sure we understand our patients' preferences and align our recommendations with their lifestyle, they're far more likely to be adherent, um, you know, during times when it is safe for them to use anticoagulation, for example. And so I consider that part of uh, being sort of a socially and uh, ethnically and perhaps economically sensitive um, prescriber of medications. Well, thanks, Emily. That's really helpful, I think, to get that perspective. So I mentioned earlier as well that lack of symptoms was the second most important reason that patients gave for non-adherence when they had very poor adherence. And, and I think that, that the key here is to, to really emphasize that, that regardless of symptoms, patients need to be appropriately treated with anticoagulation. And patients that, that do not take their anticoagulation are just at higher risk of, of stroke. And it's really important, as again, as we educate these patients, that they understand that it's not necessarily symptoms that are linked to risk of stroke. It's their underlying risk factors that really put them at risk for stroke. I also mentioned the risk and concern of life-threatening bleeding. And Emily, you talked about this in your area and patients in the winter having concerns about, about risk of bleeding. I, I think that that unfortunately there's probably a little bit more sensitivity out there towards risk of bleeding than there really needs to be. And, and I, one of the reasons that I think that, that, that that's the case is that many patients don't understand that there are reversal agents for these medications. So for the factor 10A inhibitors, we have Indexanet, that's a very effective reversal agent. For the direct thrombin inhibitor, Dabigatran, we have Idarizumab, that's again a very effective way to reverse bleeding. So again, even when patients are engaging in 
activities that they perceive put them at higher risk of bleeding. Again, I think it's important for them to understand what the true risk of stroke is as well, and the fact that we have ways to control the bleeding in the rare, uh, in the rare case that that actually happens. So when we think about patient-reported involvement in treatment decisions, again, we've talked about this quite a bit, the, the key of engaging patients in decision-making. This is a nice survey by TAM that indicated that patients who are engaged in shared decision-making um, were actually had higher rates of adherence. And so really using a formal decision aid um, is recommended by the guidelines. And again, it results in higher rates of adherence, which is really critical. So Emily, you know, I'd like to get some feedback from you. Are the reasons that, that your patients give you about why they reduce or stop taking anticoagulation similar to, to what you've heard us discussing here? Yeah, in large part they are. I mean, there there are differences based, again, on geography, as I mentioned. There's a lot of winter sport activities um, up here in northern New England, and so um, we're more sensitive to sort of high-risk um, activities than perhaps uh, other groups. Um, but in general, it's all the same stuff. Um, and, I, and I'm glad you mentioned the word reduce, because I'm sure, like me, you've had patients who either unilaterally make decisions to stop anticoagulation or to reduce it. They, it's a pretty rational sort of thing to, to think, well, I take my Pixaban twice a day, I'll have less risk of bleeding if I just take it once a day. And we of course know that that is sort of, I tell my patients that's all risk and no reward. Um, they're just increasing risk of bleeding without really um, meaningfully reducing the risk of stroke. That comes up all the time, as does this question about only using anticoagulation when there are periods of AFib. And I wonder, Sean, what, how you approach that because it comes up all the time. Yeah, again, I emphasize to patients that, that they may not know when they're having episodes of atrial fibrillation, first of all. And second of all, the temporal relationship between timing of AFib and timing of stroke is really quite poor, which patients often don't understand. So maybe just in conclusion, patients' concerns about anticoagulant therapy for atrial fibrillation can affect adherence, and I think educating patients is a way to get them back on treatment. Addressing both clinical and practical concerns that promote informed decision-making and, and will ultimately increase persistence and increase adherence. Education and shared decision-making is really the center of all this because it's what leads to patient satisfaction with their care and, and following the recommendations that we make. So stay tuned for the next episode where we'll get up to speed on the current treatment guidelines for atrial fibrillation. Thank you for listening to this episode. Don't forget to listen to the other episodes in this masterclass series and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WQZ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available online. This activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance.